Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. In this week's episode, we ask a big question. Can you have a zero carbon building? To which you'll have seen the show title, the definitive answer is no, obviously. I mean, we've said it before. But in order to explore the idea and notions around, I mean, how do you even calculate carbon? We spoke with John Butler of Sustainable Build Consultancy. He's got the .com if you want to find him. John is one of Jeff's go-to guys for carbon calculations, amongst other things. Jeff's been talking about getting him on for ages, as you've probably heard. So we got him on. Now, bear in mind, it's pretty nerdy, but it's a very nerdy subject. So we start the conversation talking about the process of creating the underlying EPD data for straw as a building material. And it goes on from there. But, I mean, it's really interesting. We cover an awful lot, like from the basic process of how you consider net calculations through to accounting for carbon that is stored in buildings. And on that note, I think from this conversation, it's clear we never really need to use the word sequestration. It's a terrible word. Anyway, I'm with John. It's a full house. So me, Dan, Jeff's there, and Alex. All right, I won't keep you any longer. Let you get into it. Hope you enjoy it. I'm very glad to have met you, finally. Jeff keeps saying, <laughs> talking about how we should be working with you, we should be talking to you, we should have you on the podcast endlessly. Got well, CC'd. now I can disabuse you of all those, <laughs> <laughs> all those ideas. <laughs> well, um, so what do you do? Uh, who do you work with? Who are you? Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> um, I sort of work with mostly self-build clients and architects and then sort of doing PHPP and carbon calculations for them, looking at retrofit projects and doing similar. Hi, Jeff. Just answering the who am I and what am I doing question. And then also working with kind of some local authorities some local authorities have worked with one local authority and have just been part of a bid working with another one, looking at kind of the things we're talking about to do with planning guidance and carbon and how they can account for that properly. So it's really nice to be potentially being able to steer them in the right direction rather than being frustrated at a bad policy that already exists. Uh, and then some sort of general carbon calculations for uh, Historic Environment Scotland, who were looking at carbon of retrofit and things like that. So it's quite a mix, which keeps it interesting and means I'm constantly going, how did I do that last time? Because <laughs> there's, enough, there's enough break between similar projects that there's a bit of re-remembering or remembering how, how things work with different types of calculations each time. Yeah. You also, um, John also helped to, well, I, I could be downplaying a role to put together an EPG effectively for uh, for straw. Isn't that right? Yeah. So I was gathering a lot of the, no, the kind straw's of... straw's not a product, John. What are you going to do an EPG for next? <laughs> Air flowers? <laughs> if you can find a way of using them, then you can get an EPD. Yeah, for that, I was gathering sort of the, a lot of the, the kind of raw data from government statistics on inputs. So that's kind of the fuel use, pesticide use, herbicide use involved in growing grain for, and then working out a way to apportion some of that to the straw rather than the grain and looking at the yield per hectare and things like that and then so you could then work out yield in relation to how much stuff has been thrown at the ground to make the stuff grow kind of thing and then that got sent off to the EPD people who made it work as an EPD sort of thing so I was providing data and then they were interpreting that into the actual impacts under all the different environmental impact indicators. <laughs> Why are you this, laughing then? <laughs> I just like the idea of we're going to do straw now, like your your facetious framing. Who asked for that project? A it, straw man? It, well, it was part Terrible of the project. Terrible. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to ignore that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, I'm going to burn Dan in, in, in a straw <laughs> effigy. <laughs> Like Edward Woodward, isn't that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean actually, um, that technically that was Wicker, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be accurate about yeah, things. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, that was part of an EU-funded project of straw 
<laughs> I don't know what to call them, straw organisations in different countries um, looking at using straw and promoting use of straw. Right. It's probably the last EU funded project we'll be part of, which is sad, but that's a whole other thing that we probably shouldn't get into rants about. We, we yeah, often so start with, with a, a Brexit uh, <laughs> lament or Excellent. Jeff slagging us off. Well, I've brought you neatly into that. Uh, mm. So that was in the UK, that was uh, the School of Natural Building and SBUC, which is Straw Bale Building UK. Um, right. So they were sort of supporting the project with the EU funding. And there's been a lot of uncertainty about what the carbon impact of straw actually is. So we wanted to quantify that. I, I and... just not to go down this rabbit hole because there is a structure and stuff I know. But um, I read recently, I think from you, John, possibly that uh, the thermal conductivity uh, of uh, of straw, just to get down really excited now, uh, <laughs> from an insulation perspective, varies depending on how it's laid. Is that right? It can it's all yeah. yeah. Um, and it can be pretty decent, actually, if it's horizontally laid, as, as I understood it. You know? Yeah, it's it's a slightly grey area in that there's definitely an effect that if all the straws are aligned in one direction and that direction is kind of parallel to heat flow, so in a wall, if they're going from the inside to the outside, the conductivity is higher, so slightly worse than if all the straws were vertically aligned. The sort of debatable bit is how much that actually happens in a bale because there's a random structure within a bale because they're not all aligned nice and neatly. But there has been some recent research looking at just the orientation of bales rather than sort of artificially aligned straws. I think we need to get the straw bale builders to use the tweezers to line up every single... Uh, <laughs> well, I think I think straw. we could call it engineered straw bales. I think that works well. You know, like engineered, in the engineered wood, engineered straw would be quite nice. Yeah, you could probably make a machine that lines it up. In fact, I think some of the the sort of straw panel systems, their machine does inherently line things up. Not perfectly, but right. there's a trend, I suppose, towards aligned one way. And that's kind of what you get in a bale. So if your straws are sort of trending towards more vertically aligned in your wall, you get a lower, better thermal conductivity. But it depends on the type of baler, whether that's on end or whether that's flat in terms of the bale. Like there are some balers that align them vertically across a flat bale. I can get really geeky about bales if you really want me to. <laughs> it's probably a tangent. I, I mean, just we, have. It's too late. Yeah, we're, we're, we're probably all right for now. I mean, I'm wondering whether... Like, he's not like just... he's got like the, like the Mormons are calling in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm wondering whether to chop this section out and stick it on at the end. Random extra info. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like, and we've got really deep into straw because not everyone's going to. Well, I don't know. When I listen back, I'll make a judgment because some, like, it is interesting. If you're interested in the subject, like this <laughs> sort of pernickety getting into the, the reeds, as it were. It's... I like that as a phrase. If you're interested in the subject, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a very polite way of saying that, actually, to everybody else. <laughs> well, it's a niche podcast, it's isn't not. it? <laughs> and it, like my missus, she, after we've been doing this for the best part of a year, she said, You've never sent me the podcast, Dan. I've never listened to it. It's boring, isn't it? You wouldn't be interested. <laughs> like, you, you're sick of hearing me bollocking on talking into Zoom all day. Why would you listen to me on your headphones or when you're off to the gym? <laughs> talking about green building and energy efficiency. And she agreed. <laughs> um, all right, Jeff, do you want to... So this episode was uh, precipitated by an article that Andy shared with us about problematic accounting of carbon. And so like today's the theme of today's episode is like problematic carbon discourse. We've got a bunch of things. It's quite free-flowing, Jeff, don't worry. Like, yeah. I, won't, I won't tell you off. But yeah, you've been you've been suggesting that we have John on for ages. So basically, um, the, the immediate thing that has precipitated this this in, invitation to John is that um, he and Andy Simmons, another friend of the podcast, the CEO of the AECB, have co-authored a, uh, an article which will be published in the next issue of Passive House Plus shortly. Um, really fascinating article, um, and the the working headline for it is "Is Zero Carbon Construction Possible." which is quite a challenging position. But, you know, we are operating in the landscape now where there's a lot of marketing speak, a lot of well-meaning efforts and people communicating about uh, efforts to try and decarbonize buildings and saying things that are sometimes ill-advised, sometimes downright risable. 
and um you know a lot of kind of uh unicorns being considered or designed or whatever um and um john i know him a few years now going back through uh really it was started with us starting to take a a, a proper interest in embodied carbon calculation um and uh john has been one of my kind of go-to consultants uh to get really good detailed warts and all embodied carbon calculations done in some of the buildings that we've been profiling in the mag and i've just found him very useful to to engage with because he's got this kind of you know he's not sometimes when you deal with consultants in this space there's a sense and i don't want to be too disparaging that that, that there's a kind of a tick box effort uh going on john is very there's a curiosity i think uh driving what he's doing and you know i'd share that uh, so i i learn things when i talk to him and i feel in a stronger position to be able to say actually that's bollocks and actually that's good um and actually this is complicated <laughs> you know and i like being able to do that so so thank you john and thank you for coming on well, thanks for having me well it's a pleasure i mean you're right jeff when you say challenging i mean it, it's not very challenging to say that zero carbon buildings is bullshit but it is to some people <laughs> I mean, yeah people are people are saying that they've built zero carbon buildings so to those people it probably is quite challenging to yeah. then basically say no <laughs> no 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 it isn't zero carbon and i've had conversations like that or, or at least sort of usually fairly brief twitter conversations with people who've made these claims and then they either sort of try and come back at you with with figures that they think are justified and then you can kind of reference them to what are now approved standards for calculating these things and how they don't meet that standard and then they either accept or just go very quiet so those conversations tend not to go on for very long but yeah there are people who make those claims and definitely find it challenging to be told that actually your building is definitely not zero carbon it might be quite good building or it might be a very good building and it might be low carbon but um yeah it's not zero carbon would you consider john uh to take this to the kind of nth degree i just want to test the limits of this if a child makes a hut out of sticks and bits of shit out in their back garden is that a, could that be a zero carbon building interesting i mean <laughs> if if you were to apply full whole building carbon life cycle assessment to that building which we absolutely should. No which child's is, which, allowed to do that. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Everyone should. Under this slightly odd scenario that we're thinking, then you know it would still would be zero carbon because at some point that little whatever they've built is going to be demolished and the carbon stored in those sticks will be released. So there's still a carbon impact. I guess you could argue that their their A1 to A3, their product stage carbon impact would be very low because they're just gathering sticks. So there's no sort of manufacturing input. The 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 fuel input would be whatever they had for breakfast kind of thing. So probably fairly minimal. Yeah, I think that's, that's the way there, I would There you it. go, Greta Thunberg. You know, <laughs> how do you like them apples? Yeah. But I'm, I, yeah, I'm not advocating that everyone should go and build with just sticks they find because obviously <laughs> it'll be thermally rubbish, <laughs> and, and then their carbon impact from heating would be massive. That, that's not high priority when you're building a little hut in your back garden. So yeah, yeah, I've got a few issues with child labour as well. Like, <laughs> Fair, but perhaps not insurmountable, or certainly not for our current current government in the UK. Uh, <laughs> but definitely problematic, much as the the rest of it is. Yeah. Like it's it's interesting seeing how carbon or zero carbon or net zero carbon or carbon zero as we once said ill advisedly like we dropped you once said yeah 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 well it didn't come from me it came from Duncan yeah well and then I I ran with it just because like a lot of it feels like it's come from this net zero uh, branding like net zero as a concept is really well branded. It's really easy to understand. It's been proliferated everywhere. And how do you improve on net zero? And net zero is problematic in all sorts of ways, which I'm sure we'll get into. But you say zero carbon, don't you? Oh, you're only net zero. We're actually zero carbon, which is better, actually. Should we, Dan, should we just stick to zero ambitions? Well, I mean, it's a good pun, <laughs> <laughs> but it's difficult to use in... Uh, in marketing, I mean, its usefulness to us as a brand is its slight nebulousness. It's and negativity, you know, and the fact that you're basically <laughs> saying to people, "We're doomed," you know. <laughs> yeah, and we're lazy as well. <laughs> <laughs> like it's net zero. In fact, Alex is the opposite of that. 
<laughs> yeah. It's making claims you can't stand up, whereas we're under underclaiming. Underclaiming? Greenwashing, yeah. they called us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're fucking gobshite and arrogant enough, but not to be greenwashing. That was just on the, it's where my mind went when you were talking about zero net zero is in terms of buildings you can you can just about justify saying that your building is operationally net zero or zero carbon because you can you can generate say the amount of energy that you're using from renewable sources on site or and then then i think you can justify saying it's zero carbon in operation that's ignoring the embodied carbon impact of say your solar pv array and things like that but you can produce on site the amount of energy that you're using through zero carbon genuinely zero carbon means at least in terms of how they run on a daily basis but that's very different to saying something is zero carbon or net zero in construction which is sort of what the article andy and me have been trying to put together is looking at in more detail because people have started to kind of say that you can be net zero in both. And I think that's where it gets much sketchier. And net zero operational is a lot easier if you make your building massively energy efficient, but the passive house end of things is a lot easier to make zero carbon operational energy because you're using less energy in the first place. So you don't need to produce that much energy to run it. And then it's easier to produce that energy through low carbon means. But yeah, that's that's a very separate thing from the sort of zero carbon in construction, which is impossible, however much people would like to say that it is, <laughs> in fact, possible. It's it's a tricky one. So we had a chat with Zach Semke of Passive Ass Accelerator a few weeks back, and he was talking about the, the challenge in talking about zero carbon building from much the same perspective, and that it's uh, where they're based on the West Coast, Seattle way. Like because so much of their energy is hydro energy, it's all renewable around there. But you can't just record your impact from an ivory tower because you're part of a grid. You're not isolated. It's like the, you, you are actually part of a society. <laughs> like there is there is more than just you going on, and those things that are going on enable you to be in this saintly position where you feel good about all the energy you use. And then there's the emergent properties that Jeff often talks about of people. Well, when they think the uh, the energy is like sort of renewable, renewably generated, carbon neutral, well, I'll just have a longer shower. Like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah, you get that kind of bounce back effect that you use more of things because you think it's okay. It's that's there's a I think it's been sort of quite well recorded with LED lights that is the, the amount of energy needed to run a light bulb has been reduced basically massively people have just started using more and more leds so it's the actual sort of overall saving of energy use has been the amount of reduction has been reduced there's been less reduction um as a result of that bounce back effect that suddenly things are sort of more freely available and um yeah you, you think you're using less but actually you're using more because you've suddenly got kind of 50 led downlights instead of one central incandescent bulb kind of thing i mean that's not the, the best example because there's there's middle ground where you can have enough light and it's actually pleasant but you're still using less energy overall but yeah there's that potential for things to kind of i'm waving yeah. my hands around which is really good on a podcast um to sort of spiral <laughs> i mean it's i mean more reads to get into like it, the only answer to this is uh it really is to crash an economy and make people poor but they yep. can't afford anything yep and if all the people did die, there would be a carbon issue there, you know, died out of starvation because them bodies, they're going to rot. There is no carbon neutrality, even in the mass starvation of the British population. So well, that went dark quickly. <laughs> yeah. So thinking of, uh, so just before we started recording, we were talking about life cycle assessments. And this is a feature of the article, like picking that apart. I mean, you were you were talking about the the problematic nature of a lot of the way carbon's accounted for, where values are just lumped together, and these have to be unpicked. Um, yeah. Well, there's yeah, in terms of the the sort of stand, well, what has what's become the standard approach it is actually in the sort of official standards. If you sort of mean the sort of that difference between standard meaning general use and standard as in ISO EN standards, but the two are converging, thankfully. Um, so according to the 
the sort of official ways of calculating the life cycle carbon in a building, you look at the full life cycle. So you look at the production of the materials. You've probably talked about this in previous podcasts a bit, but I'm recapping because it will make sense of what I'm about to say if I remember by the time I get there. So you start <laughs> with the product stage of what carbon is emitted to collect the materials, process them and make a thing. Then there's the sort of installation stage. So there are construction emissions just from the processes of building a building, from assembling those things together and getting them to site. Uh, and then as you use a building, there are emissions um, caused by your heating system, your operation of the building, potentially depending on fuel sources and all of that. There are replacement emissions. So bits of your building might have a certain life cycle, sort of windows and heat pumps are kind of a key thing that need replacing every so often in a building's life and you have to account for the carbon emissions of replacing them and then eventually you say this building is going to be demolished or dismantled and then there are emissions with that process just the physical process of taking the bits apart and then all those bits will go somewhere whether they're being recycled or thrown away or incinerated and all of those have emissions so the sort of official way of looking at it which is outlined in various standards now is is that basically you look at the whole life cycle you assume a building sort of reference lifespan of 60 years just to have something you can compare like for like on each building it doesn't mean you think that building will or should only last 60 years um hopefully they'll last longer but it allows you to compare the same sort of data for different buildings so that's, that's what UK, people... that's uk specific alone that's sort of saying um, yes 50, 50 years in the eu and 60 years in the uk but yeah, so the, yeah, the slightly different lifespans, but the point is it's just a means of allowing you to compare the results from different buildings. But that, that looking at the lifespan and all of those emissions is what people should be doing. And what the, certainly the, the, there's a relatively recent new version of the standard for how you account for carbon in an EPD, the environmental product declarations. And that insists that where, where you, sorry, before I get into that, you, the, the thing that, leads to a lot of the kind of, I would say, slightly sketchy carbon accounting where people say they have got negative carbon buildings or zero carbon is looking at biogenic carbon, which is the carbon stored in a plant-based material as it's grown. And then that carbon stays stored when you turn it into a building product. What the, the standard for EPDs says is that you, if you've got biogenic carbon, you have to include the full life cycle now, whereas they used to be less clear. So any product that is basically plant-based, you have to look at the full life cycle because you have to think about the fact that eventually that stored carbon is going to be released. Whereas what happens when people say that, oh, we've built this amazing building and it's zero carbon or quite frequently they'll say actually negative carbon. This building has, according to their accounting, resulted in a reduction in atmospheric co2 which is where i take big issue with this because it's that's it's completely impossible it just doesn't work physics wise <laughs> but i'll come to that but th th what they tend to do is look at just the product stage so they're looking at between a1 to a3 in terms of life, ci life cycle modules which is the carbon emitted by making a thing basically um, and if you look at a plant material there is some carbon emitted by collecting the material, processing it, making it into a thing. And then they're saying there's this negative carbon figure, which is the carbon that's stored within it, um, which is true. That's that's all fine and physics-based. The problem is when you add those two figures together for just the product stage, so you have a kind of net carbon figure. So you take your emissions, which might be, for the sake of argument, 50 kilos of carbon per kilo or meter cube or whatever the unit is, and you're going to say that you've stored 100 kilos of carbon per whatever the unit is so that would then <laughs> bad maths it, that would then give you 50 kilos wouldn't it minus 50 kilos net carbon so they could say that for per kilo of this product we've actually removed 50 kilos of carbon from the atmosphere by the time it's manufactured and while that's sort of true the problem is it's not going to stay stored forever because the nature of plant materials is eventually if you take them out of the building and either let them decompose or incinerate them, which is what increasingly happens to plant-based products at the end of life of a building, then that carbon's released. So what the standards say is um, you can use a net figure when you look at the whole life cycle, because essentially the net figure of carbon emitted and carbon stored 
will be very similar to just the carbon emitted figure because you're accounting for the, the emissions at the end of life anyway. Whereas if you're just looking at the product stage, it's basically creative accounting to say that we have magically removed all this carbon from the atmosphere and it's staying permanently part of this product. But so that's that's a really key thing that people often get wrong. And I think sometimes it's knowingly, but a lot of the time it's just from not fully understanding how these things work or how the processes work, not just not understanding the standards, but not thinking fully about the future, I guess. I think that's part of it because not because they don't want to, but because they want to think about their product in the or their building in the most positive way imaginable, which is an understandable yeah. sort of headspace. But it does lead to this problematic thing where they go, oh, look, it's it's this has got this much carbon stored and it's only emitted this much. Therefore, our whole building is, in fact, negative carbon. But the reality is, particularly if it's a timber product, that carbon has been absorbed over decades at least, but will all be released in one pulse at the end of life of the building. But actually building that building will have caused emissions now. So if you don't look at those actual emissions happening now, you're ignoring the real impact in real terms in the current year, basically. The, the year that you're building that building, you have caused however many carbon emissions, regardless of what's been absorbed before. You're still increasing the atmospheric carbon effectively by building that building. So basically, it will never be carbon negative. You can mm. never claim it. You, you can never claim that what you're doing is carbon negative. And actually, anyway, it sounds awful, carbon negative, doesn't it? You know, I mean, it, it, who wants to be building a carbon negative building? Carbon positive. Now, that sounds good. You know, that's something I could get behind. That's true. But um, I mean, yeah, I, I would argue that whatever, I, I like the term carbon positive, and that, that sounds like a thing that we should be aiming for. Like, it's a positive thing. <laughs> but regardless of what label you put on it, it's still not real. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're <laughs> exactly. And I think the, the, the important point here that you're getting to in the article as well is time, but that this is inherently is dynamic. So the question then is how should that inform the approaches you take when you're designing a building? To what extent do you take account of time and when the emissions are released when you're when, when you're planning a, a building? What what's the least worst option now, John, would you say? That's the tricky question. There, I mean, there's there's sort of two. Well, there's more. There's inevitably more than two aspects to anything. But let's pretend that there's only two. And one is how long your building lasts, because the longer your building lasts, the longer that carbon is stored. And also, if you design that building for the materials to be reused intact, then in effect, that carbon is still stored in terms of the life cycle accounting for that building. They're still classed as emitted at end of life because you're physically passing them to another building and the the carbon that's stored in them is physically passed. But the the sort of physical reality is if if you take, say, a chunk of timber from one building and put that chunk of timber in another building, that carbon is still stored. So planning for the longest possible lifespan of your building and then even longer lifespan of the elements of that building helps kind of keep the carbon out of the atmosphere for longer. Eventually, someone's still going to probably burn it, or the building might burn down, or you know that carbon could still be released at some point. But well, I think there is an argument for the usefulness of some storage in buildings because it provides a kind of buffering effect. This is the term I've started using. That yeah, by using biogenic materials in buildings, you can kind of slow down the release of that carbon. In here, this is where I feel like annual or nearly annual plant-based materials have a really big role to play because they have absorbed carbon in sorry annual materials annual plant-based materials based on annual crops that's what i mean because then they've absorbed all of their carbon in one year of growth and then that carbon usually if it's a crop a plant-based crop a part of that will become a thing part of that material that plant will be used for something so say in the case of straw which is sort of, I guess, where my bias is, but it's just the, the product I'm most used to. So I'll use it as an example. The grain then goes off to be used for flour and anything else that you make with grain, and you've got the straw left. If we then take that straw, package it up into bits of building and store it in the building, the carbon in that straw remains stored and remains out of the atmosphere for the life of that building. If you didn't do that, it would be... It would either decompose or be incinerated generally, or it might be used for animal bedding and then decomposed. So the carbon is released a lot quicker 
are a lot faster if you don't use it as a building material. And that applies to other plant-based materials as well. It's not, it's obviously not just straw. That's just the one that comes to my head soonest, but things like hemp, there's a similar thing going on. It can store stuff that would otherwise just be put back into the ground and then released. The carbon would be released to the atmosphere. Whereas if you slow that release, that's still avoiding emissions now. And in terms of avoiding the biggest impact of human made climate change, reducing emissions now is critical. We've got to kind of reduce our emissions within the next sort of 10 years. And that's what storing some of that carbon in buildings can help with. So in particularly if you then grow, well, I was going to say, actually disagreeing with myself halfway through a sentence, I was going to say, if you then grow more of certain crops, then you're absorbing more of the carbon. But I think actually you don't even need to grow more of these things. You just need to stop you need to increase the amount of them that either decomposes or is burnt, basically, and then take those materials, put them in buildings, and then you're slowing the release of that carbon. You've got a useful carbon storage buffer. It's, this is one of the things I'm, I'm much quicker, or not quicker, I'm much clearer at explaining in writing, and it's it's harder to explain verbally. <laughs> no, you're doing a belting job. Like, there's so much to get into here. Like, there's so much to try and consume synthesize absorb like oh jesus like the only point i feel confident picking you up on in your explanation so far is i think this is an instance where you can say man-made climate change rather than human-made <laughs> <laughs> just you know this is pa- how patriarchy works isn't it i think uh, that's probably fair it is yeah. largely our fault <laughs> <laughs> it's just too difficult i've heard people talk about the categorize or trying to find ways to categorize building materials as reusable as well as a way of sort of sequestering their own calculation but i mean that's not even viable unless you have unless the big green wizard does invent carbon capture technology and you can send all your waste to the carbon capture dome but i don't think i don't see the viability in that yet it's yeah as far as i'm aware Carbon capture has still not been tested effectively at the scale. I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I, I don't think I have been yet. A lot of this can kicking uh, is predicated on magic, whether you're talking about emissions from transport, particularly air, especially industry, plastics. You know, it's a big bet to make, and yeah. the, the men are prepared to make it. On this point, John, um, uh, one thing that I think is important to address when in, when you talk to talk about a subject like this because it, it's very easy for this to be you know people lose out people miss the nuance and they just regard it as say timber bashing for instance and the worst potential outcome of that is that it's used uh by for instance the concrete industry to promote uh using concrete instead and that is made even uh, the risk of that, I think, is even higher, or, or and the risk of of, of being misled uh, is, is even higher because, of course, there is sequestration that can occur with concrete products too through this process of of, of carbonation. Uh, I don't know if that's something you have opinions on, one way or the other. Uh, yes. <laughs> <It is. laughs> um, so the thing with concrete is, yes, uh, it's. It will re. It will as the concrete carbonates or recarbonates over its lifespan. Um, it will absorb some carbon during that process. Is um, also, I believe, when you crush up concrete at end of life, if you knock down a concrete building and crush it up, suddenly you've increased the surface area that's exposed to the air, and then you get an increase in carbonation. Then, so you can sort of say that at the end of life of that absorbing more carbon which then gets used in another product and all of that's true but as that will never get to the point that the carbon absorbed during that process is lower than the carbon emitted making the concrete in the first place or at least with the level of carbon currently emitted by manufacturing concrete it will never reach that point if you can magically find a way of making concrete that doesn't emit carbon in the first place then maybe that argument changes. Currently, we're not there. <laughs> Currently, there is still a high carbon impact. Or it's still, I guess, which comes from fuels used currently for for making co- making carbon for making concrete. And yeah. the, it's 
you know, it's just the physics of it. The carbon that's absorbed during the life of concrete or at the end of life when you crush it up is carbon that was released chemically through the heating process of the, the sort of limestone products that cement is based on. So when you, when you make concrete, you're releasing some of that chemically combined carbon from the material. Some of that chemically combined carbon is then reabsorbed during the life, but never all of it. So in fact, it's never possible for it to absorb as much carbon as it's emitted because it, you actually don't want concrete to carbonate too much because it becomes weaker, I think. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why um, uh, the concrete industry has been, I think, ambivalent about trying to capitalize on this too much because the more they talk about carbonation, the more they talk about their product and in certain applications, at least degrading, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it can cause corrosion of um, reinforcements. If you've got uh, steel reinforcement, for instance, in um, in in, uh, in reinforced concrete, I'm just wondering about if you do crush the concrete, would the crushed concrete through the process of carbonization capture the carbon that was used in the crushing process? Because those machines are quite heavy duty. I haven't done the calculation. Is the diplomatic answer to that? Um, yeah, I think. Potentially it could, but it's still that's still not a net decrease in the amount of carbon because you still Well, we found one it, process that could be carbon neutral. I think it couldn't <laughs> like, though, really. If you look at that in isolation, if you look at the life of the concrete, it Oh no, no, just the crushing part. <laughs> but you, you this is possibly the biggest takeaways. You can't look at any part of it in isolation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got to look at the whole blooming lot, otherwise you ignore massive impacts and can come to some quite spurious decisions. This is sort of, I know Jeff's sort of we've talked about this before, is when you're looking at the lifespan of a building and you're looking at replacement emissions, so say if you replace a heat pump or if you replace your windows or any other aspect of it, I'm using those two examples, but they're just two examples, there are many others. What's the carbon impact of the point of replacement? It could be that you're mm. if you're assuming that the carbon impact of replacing that bit of building is the same as producing it now um you might be overestimating but if you ignore replacement emissions completely you can come to some really bad decisions i think because they're sometimes the choice between two products in terms of which has the highest carbon impact hinges on replacement cycles so things that need replacing more often are going to have a higher carbon impact than things that need replacing less frequently so it's you have to look the point all of that ramble was to say you have to look at everything because if you ignore the emissions from replacement you would make potentially a very different decision to what you use in your building to if you factor them in and the lower carbon result will come from having thought about the whole thing so it's that if you look at any little bit in isolation you ignore a really important part of the bigger picture and that that comes back again to this this basic thing of people saying zero carbon building because our product stage if you add the stored figure and the emitted figure together it looks like it's negative carbon but they're ignoring the very physical reality of what happens later and even the time scale that's led to that carbon being stored plus the fact that it's being emitted right now so you've, you've got to look at the bigger picture oh man i saw uh so we were just talking about this before jeff i saw an episode of your garden made perfect the other week uh, on tv angela What's this? The Irish lass who's on Angela Scanlon. Angela Scanlon. That's it. Your Garden Made Perfect is a home makeover, a garden makeover series on the BBC, where they get three designers to pitch ideas for remaking someone's garden on the cheap with flimsy materials. To on the strength of the one episode I've seen, a bunch of really fucking horrible garden designs. And so to your point, like, man, these gardens aren't sustainable. They will not last. It will not need to be replaced. But one of the claims, this lady got a, an Ibiza-themed garden. So, like, in terms of the style, that shit won't last. Like, it was it was, it was, was very funny. It was a very funny programme. Um, but one of the features that really stood out to me was they, they used resin-coated railway sleepers that they described them as a sustainable product because presumably the carbon's locked in. They're not going to erode. But they're a horrible product. <laughs> so it's not going to last. Like that garden as a as a system design, that ain't a long-lasting garden. I don't, so I don't think that these programs using the word sustainable like we're doing it in this podcast. I don't think they're thinking that deep. Well, it was used in uh, – because it really jarred. Like she's making a bullshit claim. Yeah, yeah but they, all they're thinking about is just saying, well, it's made of wood. 
so would a sustainable and that's it I, do, I really don't think it goes deeper than that well, the, fact that, the, the fact that there's a bit of resin on top to make maybe make it last a bit longer confirms that it's you know more sustainable than a normal sleeper but i really don't think they're thinking much 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 deeper than that but i, I agree with you i'm not i'm not disagreeing at all and therein lies the problem <laughs> it's just <laughs> utter fucking horseshit I mean, that, very funny that makes me think of a well-known building program um, well, it's Grand Designs, um, where quite often you get. Well, I, I haven't watched it for years, so maybe it's changed now. But there, there were there was definitely a period of time where they kept going on about this house is a, a real eco house, and it's, it's you know it's 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 an eco house, and they kept saying eco house, and you're looking at it going, it's got like three levels of concrete basement, so the, the <laughs> carbon impact of digging that ground out, filling it with concrete is massive. It's not an eco house, but because they were potentially low energy and operation they thought that meant they could call it an eco house and it's better than say the equivalent building with three levels of concrete basement that's really energy inefficient because the amount of carbon emitted by that will be even higher but it doesn't make it good (laughs) making something less bad doesn't make it good and i think that's another thing i come across quite a lot yeah being being the best being 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 the best nazi in the nazi party isn't 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 isn't, isn't, you know it's not a great claim to fame So what about how regulation, or not even regulation, so uh, like guidance, building guidance has the potential to lock in really appalling thinking. And uh, I think we, we've we talked about this, well, I mean, off off the recording. So you're working with local authorities at the moment. Like, What are you seeing? It's a mix. So, I, I mean, I've, it's kind of on my list, to-do list, to track down what local authorities have got any guidance at all to do with carbon emissions as part of their planning process. And that's a bit piecemeal, whether they do or not. And then have a kind of review of what the policies that they've got are. But from just sort of coming across different councils, local authorities' policies on a fairly ad hoc basis, as somebody asks me to do a calculation for a different project, it's a really mixed picture. Some of them are really well thought out. Some of them are significantly less well thought out. And essentially, the the reason that any local authorities have a policy at all is because nothing seems to be happening on this level from central government. So local government are trying to do something. They've realised that they need to. So I massively applaud them for going, we need to do something about this. Where they've been slightly sketchier is about what they've actually done. So some of them have basically invented their own way of accounting for carbon that doesn't necessarily make sense, but it's probably better than not having a policy at all. But from my perspective, it's quite frustrating because there are emerging standards or emerged standards for how to do these calculations and how to compare different buildings. There's the sort of key one is the RICS whole life carbon assessment for the built environment, which the second edition has just been published. And that comes into effect i think in june next year or july i can't remember which must check um because it will affect my life but it's that gives goes into a lot of detail about how you should do these calculations and they're very clear particularly about this thing of biogenic carbon and when you can count it and when you can't and they follow the international standards um the other sort of emerging standards is letty which is the see if i can remember the acronym correctly low energy transition initiative or something it used to be london energy transition but they've become more national so they've changed it to low energy i think but i might be wrong but anyway letty have some really good guidance which is also tied in with the international standards and the rics guidance looking at creating targets for how much carbon it's okay to emit for building a building and they've the thing that i've come across particularly with local authorities is when you've got an existing building and someone wants to knock it down and build a new building, they've realised that they need to have a look at this and work out which is better in terms of the carbon emissions, whether retrofitting the existing building is or whether building a really good, low-carbon, energy-efficient new building might be better. And sometimes the calculation can work out that the new building is better if it's really well thought out in terms of what it's built with and if it's massively energy-efficient. But generally, retrofitting a building is usually lower carbon. But the point is they're realising they need to look at that in terms of planning permission. So if someone's asking for permission to knock down a building and build a new one, they've councils are realising they need to get them to prove that their new building will be better. And that's actually really difficult because 
it mostly won't be better. But how they do that is is where it gets sketchier. This is where I was meaning to get to, eventually getting to my point with Letty, is they've, in one of their, I can't remember whether it's the Climate Emergency Retrofit Guide or the Climate Emergency Construction Guide, or it's, I can't remember the exact name, but it's one of those two. They, right. they've, yeah. so Design Guide, yes. Thank you. They've outlined exactly this scenario and they say you should calculate the carbon emissions, the life cycle carbon emissions, so operational and embodied and end of life for an imagined, what would you do if you retrofit that building versus what would you do if you knocked it down? And for that whole life cycle, including the emissions from demolishing that old building, the new one should come out lower carbon before you're allowed to do it, basically. And some councils have totally got that, and that's basically what they've built into their guidance. Others have done some slightly odd things, <laughs> basically. But yeah, I applaud that they've, they're trying to get the guidance, but it's it's frustrating because there is national guidance. It's not, it's not an official standard. It's not kind of written into any kind of regulations. Um, but it would be great if it was because it would make life easier for councils, frankly, because then they wouldn't have to invent their own system. And as someone working in this is a big part of my job, it's difficult when you then have to kind of reinvent what you're calculating or what parameters you're using every time you do a calculation for a different local authority because they've all got different guidance. And some of them, there's one I've been working on where I've just had, I've, I've got to the point where I just have to go, okay, just accept. <laughs> you don't think it makes sense, but just accept and um, <laughs> and do it their way because it is really well intended and it is still better than not doing any calculation at all. But it's, yeah, and it would be good if there was more coordination. And I don't know, in, until government does something and there's frankly no sign of that happening, certainly in the UK anytime soon, the councils are on their own. So I don't know whether that coordination or, or needs to come from the people who are producing this guidance, like Ricks and Letty, where they need to maybe go on a big promotional mission to send their things to, to local authorities and say, look, we're actually thinking about this already. Do what we're suggesting kind of thing. They might be doing that, to be fair to them. I don't know, because I'm not in those groups. Well, I think there are there are networks of local authorities and people trying to work together. So shout out Tanya and Stephen. People are making progress in some of these areas, but like coordination, like mass coordination, well, you just can't do it nowadays, can you? Everything is so regionalized, factionalized, and resource starved. They're yep. just doing the admin. This is why it's all insurgency. It's just really problematic, though, because, you know, if you look at the corporates, for instance, given the direction of travel with uh, uh, the, the, the way the money men, mainly men again, um, are, are have been moving in recent in recent years with the EU taxonomy and CSR directive and uh, uh, and so on, you have um, bigger developers in particular under pressure to start doing embodied carbon calculation and reporting. And they're going to need that to be done in lots of cases uh, to international standards. Inter you know, when we talked to uh, the head of real estate finance in AIB for the, for the last issue of the magazine, the thing that attracted them, for instance, to the Home Performance Index overall green rating system for, 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 for homes that the Irish Green Building Council developed was that it was internationally recognised. And, um, you know, we have to herd the cats. Otherwise, you're going to end up with local authorities doing their own thing. And um, these bigger corporates, for instance, which is where a lot of this is starting now, uh, having to duplicate their work, basically do whatever the local authority requires and then and then uh, and then do their own calculations for their own reporting. Oh, it's more work for you, John. So, yeah, I mean, but not in a helpful way, frankly, because yeah. that, that it's so it's it's wasteful of my time and clients money essentially if they're paying me to have to come up with a new way of calculating something every time and yeah i imagine for those big companies they're working in probably lots of different areas and lots of different authorities and they want one system that works everywhere so that they're doing just one thing and there is really good guidance out there it's just not being applied and it's not sort of being written into the planning guidance on a local level that that's what must be used. But to be fair, I have seen, I can't remember where it was now, there was a local authority that specifically referred to the RICS guidance, which I think is great. And that's kind of what I think they need to be. It's probably worth saying the reason I think the RICS guidance is good is because it's the exact opposite of just working in, in a tiny little bubble and trying to figure out what's happened. It's been informed by lots of different people and all sort of experts in their field. And then it's been widely consulted on um, within construction industry generally, as well as the kind of low carbon geeks like me. Um, so it's 
it's representative. It's the, probably the most representative standard there is in terms of current thinking on calculating carbon and how to apply that to construction. So I think I think it is it is a really good baseline for doing these instruct these calculations. I still haven't fully digested the second version because it's gone from being kind of I can't remember how many pages the old one was, but it's it's something like sort of ten pages to one hundred and forty pages. Um, <laughs> it's those, those numbers should not be quoted exactly, but um, it's it's massively increased in scale and complexity. But part of the reason for that is because it had to, <laughs> basically, because yeah. things things were falling through the cracks. Different bits of calculations or sort of different types of building were falling through the cracks of the original one. So now it's it, there's guidance for like domestic buildings for infrastructure projects, and a lot of the sort of things that weren't clarified in the first guidance are explained in gr- great detail in the second one, which makes it longer to take longer to digest and probably longer to implement initially, but it makes it a much stronger document because all those things are actually covered. Um, so yeah, that's why I keep I will keep talking about RICS because I think it is a really good I think it is a really good document. Well, you can oh. see how, how much things have been moving in this space because um, Reba, when when they uh, and they reference RICS in their in their own voluntary targets, as you well know, John, when they introduced their 2030 climate challenge document at first, they had a target for dwellings of 300 kilos of CO2 equivalent per square meter for 2030 um, for all of the operational. Uh, so all of the embodied carbon, excluding the the uh, um, the whole of carbon, but excluding the uh, the energy use and water use uh, uh, and emissions arising from that, and very quickly that uh, was reissued that that document and the target had been revised up to six hundred and twenty five. And um, in fairness to Reba, I you know we tried it when we when we reported on the magazine, we were not too critical of them um on that i think because they'd stuck their necks out they were willing to actually set a target you know um and i think there was an admission that the 300 target was far too much of a stretch for most of the industry based on kind of current practice i think 625 is not ambitious enough frankly for um for for 2030 but they seem to be open to kind of um to to to, to hopefully revising these things over time as well you know I think there's um Letty have sort of slightly different targets. They've coordinated more with Reba because originally Letty were doing their thing, Reba were doing their thing, and now they've started working together, which is great. But the the Letty 2030 targets are slightly lower carbon, so more stringent than than the Reba ones. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head because I'm really bad at remembering the figures without looking them up again. Um complicated but, too. You know, the Letty ones, they're great, but they're they're a bit more complicated, I find, you know. They're, well, they're, they're kind of, I think it's necessary complexity because mm. they, they've split it into an upfront carbon target and a whole life carbon target. And the sort of reason for that is this need to reduce carbon now. So they, they make you have a, have a target for upfront carbon, which is your kind of product stage and construction of the building. And that, that's a lower figure than your amount of carbon you could emit over the whole life cycle. Some of that is to account for this thing that you're releasing biogenic carbon potentially at the end of the life of the building. And some of that is to make sure that you are actually causing very few carbon emissions now. So that upfront target is is more stringent because you need to make sure that what you emit now, by the time you've built that building, yeah. you've only emitted this much carbon. So that I think that's a good thing. And that crucially ties back into this thing of the biogenic carbon they will report the biogenic carbon for that upfront stage but it is not included in the the figure that you report for the target it's a separate figure so you can say we've emitted this much carbon or in order to meet this target say level a or whatever it is you've emitted so much carbon per meter square of building but we've also got this much stored and that stored thing just stays as a separate figure which you could sort of argue is a way of kind of looking at that buffering thing. So you could say the more that we've stored, the better we're doing, but only crucially, only when you've also met that actual emissions being low. And this is where it's, this is another of those places that it can go a bit askew is if you haven't met, if you haven't made sure that your actual real emissions are as low as possible, your stored carbon is kind of irrelevant. So if you've built, say, a massive concrete thing, but you'd filled it with straw bales or something, your stored carbon figure would be amazing, but your actual emitted carbon would be monstrous so you 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 have to look at both so much as i think there is a really useful 
that kind of buffering effect of using plant materials. This is something I meant to come back to earlier and gives me a chance now. That um, I am advocating that there's a useful carbon storage and a carbon release delay from using as many plant materials as possible. I'm not saying that last sentence, in fact, don't just use as many plant materials as possible. Use the sort of make sure of the materials that you have to use to make your building well insulated, airtight, structurally sound fire resistant and all of that, all the things that you need your building to be and, you know, comfortable and warm. If those materials maximize the carbon storage within them, don't use more carbon storing material for the sheer hell of it, because that will still actually really increase your real terms emissions of construction. You still need to use resources efficiently. And also we don't, we, we shouldn't be encouraging kind of massive land use change to grow more and more crops or something. You, you know, we don't, we need a lot of carbon storage happens in what's the word uncultivated ground so we don't you know we you need to resume oh god i've got garbled you need to use your resources efficiently whatever they are whether they're carbon storing or not that's the kind of key thing so the carbon storage is a plus it shouldn't be the driving force for everything <laughs> yeah and none of the resources that we use so your point about the uncultivated land nothing is carbon neutral really yeah. like it all it something is happening somewhere <laughs> everything in terms of accounting for carbon is some form of offsetting but it doesn't have to be bad like yeah you don't have to make the grand claims but if you're using any any materials like the buffering it's short-term offsetting it's understanding yeah. It's the bit that we're, I think we're probably going to have to wrap up now, which I think uh, we've come to a, a, a reasonable point. I think you're, the last pearls of wisdom that dropped from your mouth, I think, are uh, plenty for folk to, to think on. That There's is- one thing on this stat that, Dan, that, uh, 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 that I just very briefly like to add in. I have to do some digging to, to, to see if this is true, but I was in a building for a launch. I won't say where uh, recently. <laughs> Um, and it was a precast concrete building, I think, um, with, which had some glue lamb timber beams um, uh, at ceiling level. And an architect I know pointed out to me that they were decorative beams. Uh, I think I, <laughs> I don't know that they were actually uh, providing any strong stru- structural purpose at all uh, or, or, or connect, can even connected in such a way that they could be. But uh, I'll do some digging to try and find out. That's the kind of perverse kind of, uh, you know, aesthetic uh, appearance of virtue that you're that th- 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 that you can you can get led towards, uh, you know, um, shiny yeah. new corporate office. It was, you know, yeah. Your corporate headquarters made perfect. Yeah, I, I literally had my head in my hands when Jeff was saying that. <laughs> exactly the kind of thing which is maddening. I and mean, they could they could argue that oh, they're you know in those glue lamp beams they've got so much stored carbon. It's like yeah, but you wouldn't have needed to use that material if you you didn't need to use that material. It's not doing anything. That they would have been better as trees. They would have stored <laughs> more carbon. Um. All right then. Well, is there anything is there anything you'd like to put across, John, that you haven't had a chance to? Probably, but I can't remember what it is. <laughs> <laughs> There'd be something that I think of when I go and go, oh, damn, I didn't come back to that. But oh, I man. think that's just because it's such a big topic and it's really difficult to encapsulate the entire yeah. thing in the short burst. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back. Have you got anything you would like to plug, John? We've got the article coming out in Passive House Plus. Uh, so obviously everyone who listens to this should be reading Passive House Plus, subscribing and advertising if they can. Um, I don't think I do. <laughs> cool. If well, that, you need that's... carbon calculations or PHPP, I'm here. But other than that, <laughs> well, you can. Uh, John's LinkedIn will be in the show notes. Uh, you can find him there. He isn't elusive. Um, Jeff, have you got any light space you're knocking out? Uh, in in the in the magazine. Yeah. No, in like your spare room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a spare room because not enough people advertise in the magazine, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool. Uh, All right, then. Well, that's easy to wrap up. All right. So thank you for listening. Um, If you get something out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please, why not share it with them? Subscribe to the podcast. Join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC. All the ladies, take a look at her own space. What else have we got? Talk to us about the consultancy work. We're all 
between us all, we're doing all sorts of carbon calculations, messaging, that sort of thing. Resident research, that's been a big one this week. What else do we need to pitch? What do we need to chat Helping organisations in terms of ourselves. Yeah, yeah. organisations to understand and articulate where they are in terms of sustainability and sorry, the noise and decarbonisation. And if you're fretting about ESG, because that will be hitting you hard at some point, we've lots of experience in that. Right, enough blowing our own trumpet. Thank you so much for joining us, John. That's been a real Thank pleasure. You. Thank you for um, having me. I I think I'm going to get some out of listening back to this in the edit because there was so much to cover. I mean, that's the nature of the subject, isn't it? It's definitely a big, it's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one and it's absolutely critical, I feel, as, which is not necessarily a helpful combination. No. But um, before you approach the subject, then, it's worth bearing in mind it's much more complicated than you think, whoever you are. But look, just try and do your best and talk to John if you need support in understanding it. And us, yeah. Cool. All right, then. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.